This is Faithful Sayings, broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. Well, thanks for tuning in today. We are going to begin a new study. We finished up Romans and Proverbs last week or within the last two weeks, I guess. And uh, I don't have a new series on the board yet, but I do want to go back to a very basic and fundamental study this morning uh, about the Bible itself and understanding the Bible. And you may have heard people throw around a big fancy word like hermeneutics. And all that means is just a framework for interpreting the scripture, for interpreting the Bible. So everyone, whether they realize it or not, has a set of rules in their mind that they use to interpret the Bible or to try and understand the Bible. And that's all hermeneutics is referring to. And there's different philosophies, if you will, about how to understand and interpret the Bible. And what I want to do this morning is is think a little bit about that and uh, consider what the Bible has to say about that very subject, uh, because it is mentioned in the Bible. Uh, For example, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, he says, Make every effort to present yourself approved to God, an unashamed workman who accurately handles the word of truth. Uh, more contemporary translations will say who correctly explains the word of truth, handling the word of truth, uh, um, rightly dividing the word of truth. The old King James says uh, correctly teaching the truth. So all of these ideas are the same. And what Paul is saying is that there is a right and wrong way to handle the scripture. And he's admonishing this young man, Timothy, who's in Ephesus, who's going to be preaching there. He says, you need to do it the right way. You need to make sure and make every effort that you are handling God's word the right way. And the literal, uh, the King James translation is actually very literal when it says rightly divide the word of, of truth, because the, the word that Paul is using there that's translated, you know, correctly handle or rightly divide was used of stonemasons and their, and their work in the first century. And what it was commonly referring to was uh, cutting stones straight in fact, very little translations of the Bible say, cut the word straight. And what Paul is talking about is if you've ever seen uh, pictures of like old ancient, uh, of ancient ruins, and maybe there's some uh, columns, like, columns like some Corinthian columns or something like this. If you look closely at those columns that are still standing, those stone columns, they uh, are not one solid piece of rock or stone. If you look closely, you'll see seams cut within those things. So it's actually several stones that are stacked on top of one another uh, to make this column, but the seams are cut so perfectly and so fine that they're really invisible unless you're looking for them. And and so that's the idea that Paul is putting forth here about uh, the Scripture, is that it, it, it comes together if it's handled correctly, and it should be, and it can be, uh, it makes one unified whole. It's perfectly consistent. It's it's seamless throughout. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy and, of course, us uh, as he is writing here and giving us this admonition. It's mentioned again in Second Peter, at least the idea is in Second Peter 3 and verse 16, when Paul, uh, excuse me, when Peter is, is speaking of Paul, he says that he writes in his letter speaking of matters that are hard to understand. And then he says that there are some people who are ignorant and unstable and they distort the things that Paul has said. And then notice he says, as they do the rest of the scriptures and then this to their own destruction. So there's some very important points to take away from from these passages. 
And this one in Peter speaks to the consequence. Certainly the one in, in, in 2 Timothy 2.15 does as well. But Peter really speaks to the negative consequences, uh, the fatal consequences of mishandling the Word of God. As he says, when people distort the Scriptures, they do this to their own destruction. So this is a very important topic. It's a very fundamental and basic one. But when we talk about how to, you know, what rules we are using to interpret the Bible and how we handle the Bible and how we are going to teach the Bible, it's it's very important that we get it right and that we do it on God's terms and the biblical terms, or else we're just going to end up distorting them. Maybe we do that in ignorance, uh, but we want to make every effort, as Paul said, so that that's not going to be the case. We don't want to be unstable. We don't want to be ignorant. We don't want to be guilty of distorting the scriptures willingly or unwillingly we want to handle them right so i think that speaks to the merit of this study and also it shows that the bible itself has a commentary about uh, hermeneutics and handling the scripture and where i want to begin uh, after establishing that point is uh, thinking about authority and the authority of scripture before we get down to uh, you know the how of of interpreting it and uh, the nuts and bolts of that. So in speaking of the authority of Scripture, there's different views uh, in in the world, but I want to take the biblical view. Uh, I believe that the Bible is the Word of God, that it is, as as Paul says, inspired by God in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Certainly the words that are in this book were written down by people. There's no question about that. Uh, the, the letters that Paul wrote bear his name and so on and so forth. Um, they are human writers, but ultimately the Bible is claiming that what is behind those words, though written with human hands, is the voice of God. That it is, in fact, the Holy Spirit, as Peter says, who inspired or breathed out every single word of this this book. And so it is authoritative for that reason, Um we're going to look at some passages that say that explicitly, but if we were just to consider the claims that the Bible is making about itself in places like 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 and others about its origin, uh, that should establish for us in, in our minds um, the, the reverence that we should have for it and seeing it as authoritative. And when we talk about authority, we're just simply talking about the right and the power to give orders. And that's... All of that that authority lies with with God, and this was and this was an important topic in Jesus's day, right? In Matthew twenty one, when he comes into Jerusalem for the last week of his his life, he's teaching in the temple, and he's and uh, there's a lot of controversy, and things are coming to a head, of course. And it says in verse twenty three, he entered the temple, and the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, "By what authority?" Are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. And he says, the baptism of John, what was its source? Was it from heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. In answering Jesus, they said, We don't know. And he also said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So again, a ton of lessons within that discourse and that exchange that Jesus has with these people. Uh, But for the sake of our lesson, number one, 
Jesus doesn't dismiss their question. He doesn't say, authority doesn't matter. You know, why are you asking me this? Uh, no, he recognized that's a valid question. By what authority are you doing these things? Now, Jesus responds because he knows their true intentions, and so he responds in a certain way. And he turns the, the question around and says, I need you to, to tell me by what authority John did his baptism. So he's he's talking about John the Baptist. And, of course, we know the Scripture teaches John was a true prophet, and he was the, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make straight the paths of the Lord. And so he was to prepare people for the coming of Christ. And that's exactly what he did. And Jesus is asking these folks, where did John get his instructions why you know why was he allowed to to do what he did and he, Jesus says was it from heaven in other words was it god was god the source of John's authority was it god who gave him that authority to do the things he did or was it just from people was it from men and then he's got them between a rock and a hard place right so this is Jesus's way of exposing their intentions in in the text we can't really hardly read through this text without having this this discussion because there's another tangential point, I think, uh, that comes into play and I think really contributes to this study as well, where they reason within themselves and they say, you know, if, if we say it was from God, then Jesus is going to say, we didn't believe him. Why Why didn't you believe him? Because these particular sectarians that he's talking to, the chief priests and the elders, they rejected the baptism of John. I believe that's in Luke chapter 7 where... Uh, Luke comments on that. But at any rate, that's what Jesus is saying. If you're going to say he, his authority is from God, then you are sinning because you ignored God's instructions. And that was actually the scripture's um, analysis of what they had done in Luke chapter 7. Luke specifically says they rejected God's purpose for themselves, having rejected the baptism of John. And then they say, well, if we say from the people, well, then where there's going to be backlash from that because all the common people recognize John as a true prophet for what he, for what he is. And so they finally say to Jesus, we just don't know, which wasn't true. They did know, right? But, but because they are thinking only in political terms and in terms of political fallout and embarrassment, they, in other words, their goal is not really the truth. Their goal is not really to determine what the authority uh, was for for John's baptism or for Jesus's the source of his authority? Their goal was just to uh, try and and denigrate him and bring him down. And they can't, but they can't muster the honesty to admit that, right? And Jesus exposes that in, in his question. They can't muster the honesty to say, "Yes, John was from God, and we ignored him, and we we were wrong." And so Jesus says, "I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things." In other words, Jesus says there's no reason for us to talk any further because you can't be honest with yourselves about John's authority and the source of it. Uh, so that I say that contributes to our study, that, that kind of tangential point, um, because we, in in interpreting the Bible and understanding the Bible, first and foremost, we have to be honest with ourselves about what it's saying about us. So we have to be honest about the claims that it's making about itself uh, and the authority that it has and the source of the words that we're reading in this book. And we and we have to be honest with ourselves about what it is saying, saying to us if we're going to make any progress. 
All right, because we can read the words in black and white on a page and we can understand them on an intellectual level and know what it's saying uh, without ever actually applying it, without ever actually believing it, and and so be reconciled to God through it. Because as Paul says in Romans one sixteen, it, the gospel, is the power of God to bring salvation to everyone who, who believes. Uh, so... Uh, that is a, a very important point for us. We have to be honest with ourselves. These folks that Jesus is speaking to here couldn't couldn't do that. They didn't have the humility and the honesty they needed to own up to their mistake and own up to their misjudging and ignoring John the Baptist and the authority that was given to him by God. And thus they also rejected rejected Jesus. You know, this is one of the last things Jesus says as well in, in Matthew 28, uh, the, the last chapter of Matthew. Before he ascends, he says, all authority, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. And then he gives instructions, verse 19, therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Right. So Jesus is saying in very, you know, uncertain, uncertain terms that I have all authority from God. It's been given to me. And this that's the basis then for these instructions. I want you to go now and tell the world about me and my gospel. And you teach them and then you baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit so they will observe all that I commanded you. So again, this is a, a very important topic because the Bible speaks to uh, its own authority and the, the weight of its authority. And there are, like I mentioned at the outset, differing views with regard to the authority of the Bible. Some people, of course, reject it out of hand. Uh, other people who, who claim to believe the Bible will take a low view of it. So they'll say, well, some of it's inspired, but not all of it. Or some of it is more uh, more inspired than others or more weighty than others and uh, or more important than other parts. And uh, that's just not the biblical perspective. The biblical perspective, is, again, is that it's all inspired, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so that the man of God will be complete and equipped for every good work. That was true in Paul's time when he wrote it, and it's true in our time now. Our spiritual needs haven't changed. We still need to be reconciled to God, and we still need to recognize the authority of His Word and submit to it. So that whatever we do, Paul says in Colossians 3.17, whatever we do in word or deed, we do all in His name. That is to say, with his permission, with his authority. It has to be okay with him. And if we do anything outside of that, we sin. We go into unauthorized territory. And so when we're talking about understanding and interpreting the Bible, uh, we have to appreciate first and foremost its authority and be honest with ourselves about what it's saying, uh, saying to us. One more point on authority um, and, and its inseparably its connection to, to faith and authority and how authority is inseparably connected to faith. I want to go to uh, Luke chapter seven for just a moment. Uh, Luke chapter seven. You want to turn there with me. I want to pull it up on my screen because here's, this is another exchange about authority, but uh, now Jesus brings faith into the picture and he uses, he, he shows the connection. I think in this, this discussion he has with this man, the centurion. And so 
uh, the, you know, the backstory, we won't, we won't read the whole thing here in Luke chapter 7, but the backstory is there is a centurion, so he's a Gentile, he's not a Jew, uh, and he has this slave who is very sick and is near death. And nevertheless, this centurion, even though he's a Gentile, he's, hardly, he's highly regarded uh, by uh, the Jewish people. And so uh, they hear about this a sick person. They know Jesus has the power to heal his, his servant. And so they send some elders to ask him to come and save the life of the slave. And so Jesus agrees uh, to go and do this. In verse 6, Jesus started on his way with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Now, why is that significant? What's, you know, what's the point here? Uh, you know, what Jesus is saying, what, you know, what I, what I want us to notice is the centurion's explanation really for his way of thinking. All right. So as a soldier and as a, specifically as an officer and one in charge, he says, I, I am under authority and I have authority. In other words, I have the power, the right to give these orders and expect obedience. I have those over me who give me orders and I should obey. And what he is recognizing about Jesus is that is what Jesus himself said, that Jesus has the power and the right, the authority to do this just by saying the word, to heal someone just by saying the word, that that power is in his hand and at his disposal. And so if Christ, who has authority, says, again, do not lie, and it's within his power or right to make that decision and expect obedience, what should our response be? And notice also that Jesus doesn't couch the centurion's explanation in terms of authority. Jesus doesn't say, the text doesn't say he marveled at him and said, what an excellent grasp of authority this man has, even though that was true. Jesus says, no, this man has great faith. This man has great faith. You see the connection there. Faith in Christ is inseparably linked to recognizing his absolute authority. And this is not the only place in Scripture where this connection is made. Jude in chapter 1 and verse 8 says that we must contend, and earlier in the chapter in verse 3 says we must contend earnestly for the faith. And then if you drop down to verse 8, he says he speaks of, of men who do not hold to the faith and he says a number of things, but you'll notice in verse 8, he says, they reject authority. So this likely means all authority, but especially in this case, the authority of Christ, who is the author of faith. They deny, he says in verse 4, our only Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. So whether we're talking about one's personal degree of faith, like the centurion, or we're talking about the faith in the objective sense, Neither can exist apart from a recognition and respect from for the authority of Christ. So if someone says, I believe Jesus is Lord, but gives you 
you know, but looks at you funny when you start to speak of the authority of Christ and submitting to the authority of Christ, that's a red flag. And that's something we need to be honest with ourselves about in our, in ourselves as well. Right? Jesus says in Luke 6 and verse 46, oh, Why do you call me Lord and do not do what I say? Right? So faith in Christ is inseparably linked to an appreciation and recognition of his authority. He is the perfect, he is the perfect authority. He's also the perfect model of submission to authority. So our Lord himself spoke only when God gave him a commandment to speak. In John 12, 49 is what he says. I speak is what the Father tells me to speak. And he only acted when God showed him what to do. John 5 and verse 19, and again in verse 30, and again in verse 36. He repeats this time and time again. And the reason for this is simple. He says in John six thirty eight, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus came to do God's will not his own. And we must do the same. So Jesus is has all authority, but he also shows us how to submit to authority. He is the authority. He shows us how to submit to authority. And now for the nuts and bolts and the how, he shows us how to establish authority. All right. So in other words, what, what am I looking for in the Bible as I read it uh, to apply to, to my life? Now there's there's a whole lot of different directions we can go um, and, and a whole lot of principles we can cover. But I'm just going to lay down some basic ones this morning that uh, Jesus himself used. And so when we look in the scripture and we we look at Jesus's life and his teaching, and then we see how, why he explains uh, the, the things that he did, you know, the why behind them. That should help us understand how to find justification for why we do what we do. Right? That was the question on the minds of those who challenged him, even though they were insincere. The question of it itself is valid. By what authority do you do these things? Right? So where do we find authority to do what we do? And you'll remember to start with, in Mark chapter 12, uh, Jesus, again, during his final week in Jerusalem, there were various Jewish sectarians challenging him in the temple. And and one of them was the Pharisees and, of course, the Sadducees. In Mark chapter 12, you can read about those exchanges in verses 13 through 17. And then the Sadducees take their shots at him in verses 18 through 27. And in addition to these confrontations, one of the scribes posed a question to Jesus that was common to rabbinical debates. In verse 28, he says, Which commandment is the most important of all? Which commandment is the most important of all? And so, as Jesus engages in this discussion, the, you know, the, the background of this is there was about 613 commands of the law that were categorized as heavier or lighter. And the goal in many of those discussions was to find a simple summarizing principle that would encapsulate the law. And Jesus offers two such principles found in, in the commands of the law. First, he says, from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all the, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. He says, this is the first and greatest commandment. And then he says, secondly, the second one is like it from Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so in both cases, the point is, in both cases, Jesus drew conclusions about God's will by appealing to commands 
written in Scripture. No, I think well, that's that's simple. That's easy to grasp. We we would think that you know, and there and there can be no question that Jesus held all the law in the highest regard. He says down to the very smallest strokes in Matthew five seventeen and eighteen. But there can also be no doubt that while Jesus believed that all the law was important, he also believed that some parts of the law were more fundamental. So Jesus wasn't saying you can do this and safely ignore the rest. That's the wrong conclusion to to come to. But the point is, as he says in in Matthew 23 and verse 23, is that while these folks were taking tithes of their down to their very herbs, he says, you neglect faith and justice and and mercy. In other words, those those other things, it, it doesn't matter if you can't even, you won't be able to get off the ground unless you first love God with all your heart. Do all those other things, but you're just moralizing. You're living a good life to be sure a moral life by biblical standards, but it's still not acceptable to God because you're not doing it because you love Him. And so these two commands were not simply two out of 613 commands. According to Jesus, they were the very foundation of everything else in the law and the prophets. In Matthew 22 and verse, and verse 40, on these hang all the law and the prophets. And other translations say this is the law and the prophets. And so it begins with the, uh, you know, the, the first and greatest command is, is an appeal to our attitude it is about loving God with all of our heart. But if, as we establish authority, if Jesus, if we're thinking about reading the Bible, understanding the Bible, what do I look for? Well, Jesus established authority for what he did and what he taught by looking at commands written in Scripture. And so if we find a command in Scripture like we do in Colossians, uh, where Paul says, I think it's in chapter 2, where he says, do not lie to one another. Right. So that's very straightforward. It's hard to misconstrue that. Well, we know that's what we need to do, and that's what God approves of. Do not lie. Always tell the truth. And speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. And so that's one way Jesus established authority from what he did. By appealing to commands, and we can do the same. Uh, he also appealed to examples uh, in Matthew chapter 12. There Jesus speaks of the example of the Ninevites. And so... This is in the larger context of some Pharisees and teachers asking him about signs. And um, they said, you know, we want to see a sign from you. And he said in verse 39, and even an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so Jesus is speaking, he's looking forward to his resurrection, and he's saying that that is a sign that he calls the sign of Jonah. And that is going to be proof of his identity, the the, the final definitive proof of who, who he is. And, you know, Paul says as much in Acts 17.30, he says, God has appointed a day in which he'll judge the world through a man that he has chosen, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. All right, so that's what Jesus is talking about here. And then he, but then in verse 41 he says the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold something greater than Jonah is here. And so within this um, one one verse Jesus is appealing to the good example of these Ninevites. He says 
they repented. And he acknowledges that their repentance is genuine and was acceptable. And we read, you know, the, the story of, of Jonah and, and how that all unfolds in the book of Jonah. And uh, we can see exactly what they did. And we know that it was acceptable to God because God fulfilled his promise and relented from judging them and uh, condemning them and burning up their city. That didn't happen. Of course, that made Jonah very angry, but that's a study for another time. But Jesus is essentially saying to us, if you want to see a good example of repentance and know what repentance is, look at what those Ninevites did. They were approved. And they're going to condemn you because they did the right thing when Jonah preached to them and something greater than Jonah is here. He And he's talking, of course, about himself. He is the prophet. He's the one who inspired Jonah to say what he said. And that is an appeal to an example. It's a very subtle one. But nevertheless, uh, that teaches us that we can look to approved examples within Scripture and know that if if God approved that, that behavior, um, you know, all the things being equal and we're looking at the context and we, we can understand that he'll approve it today as well. And, you know, Paul says as much in, you know, in his letters as well. And he gives the caveat. He says, imitate me insofar as I imitate Christ, he says to the Corinthians. But, you know, you'll find in places like Philippians 3 where he says, join in following my example. He says, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. And he says, many a walk of whom I often told you and I tell you now weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. And so Paul is just saying very plainly, again, it's, it's hard to misconstrue this. In verse 17, he says, follow my example. Why? Because Paul is our perfect example? No. Again, the caveat he gave was imitate me only insofar as I imitate Christ. But he knew that he had... Uh, the authority from Christ to say the things that he did and to write the things that he did because he was inspired. And so he says, follow my example, not from a braggadocious standpoint, but because he knew it was sincere and he knew it was acceptable. Right? And that should be sufficient for us. Right? We, we can look at the, the New Testament. We can, we can learn God's will by studying the examples found there that he approved of, and we can draw out the principles reflected in those apostolic examples like Paul or, or otherwise that are that are approved. And then lastly, Jesus expected, you know, when, when he established authority um, and he wanted people to understand God's will, he made necessary conclusions. So things that aren't explicitly stated in the scripture, nevertheless, Jesus expects us to understand. And that's all that means, is that there are some things that are just not spelled out explicitly in the Bible, but we are forced to conclude them uh, because of the relationship between other things that are explicitly stated. And so let me just give you an example of what I'm talking about here in in Jesus in Matthew chapter 22. So here's another group of sectarians who are wanting to test Jesus, and they're trying to challenge him. And they're trying to expose him. So so their goal is not truth, ultimately, but they're just trying to tear him down and embarrass him. And they come to Jesus with this elaborate hypothetical. And what Matthew says, uh, so this is the Sadducees, and he gives this parenthetical note. He says there is no resurrection. All right, so that's the preface to their whole question and their whole hypothetical that they're going to put before Jesus, who 
would teach that he is the resurrection and the life and that there will be a resurrection as he did in John chapter 5. And so they're challenging him on this point. And they give this hypothetical and they cite the law of Moses that there's this um, this obligation for a brother who is the brother of a man who dies and his doesn't have any children, that the brother is supposed to marry the wife and then bear children for his brother. And then they say in verse 25, so there were seven brothers and the first married and died, having no children and left the wife, his brother. And it happened to the second, third, all the way down to the seventh. And then he says, last of all, the woman died. And he says in verse 28, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. Right. And so this is supposed to be their case against the resurrection. This is supposed to expose, you know, the silliness of a bodily resurrection. But notice how Jesus answers. He says, uh, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. It says in the resur- resurrection, they neither marry nor are they given in marriage, but are they like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So notice Jesus begins by saying, you don't know, you don't understand the scriptures or the power of the law. The Sadducees rejected much of the scripture. They only accepted the first five books of the law. And much of what is said about the resurrection are in the prophets like Isaiah and Daniel. But Jesus quotes from the law itself when he says, God says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then he puts that together with this other truth that God is the God of the living and not the God of the dead. And he tells them, you don't understand scripture or the power of the power of God. In other words, he's saying, based on those two things that I've just submitted to you in verses 32 uh, and 33, he says, you should have concluded and you should know that there is a resurrection from the dead, right? The, the Sadducees made the assumption that the future life in the resurrection state would be exactly like the life it is here, right? And that was fatal to their case. And Jesus is showing that you're just making the assumption. So that's a great illustration of drawing a conclusion that isn't necessary. It's just they're just making an assumption. And Jesus exposed their ignorance of the scriptures, again, by drawing on a passage from the law that the Sadducees would have accepted as they claimed they accepted as God's word. And he knows exactly what they're trying to do. He says, as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read? Right, And that's the question for us, too. I think that should ring loudly in our ears. Have you not read? Are we taking the time that we should, as Paul commanded Timothy, to be to make every effort to handle the word of God rightly. That's what Jesus expected of these self-proclaimed teachers. And they should have concluded that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob didn't cease to exist at death because God is still their God and they are alive to God and they await a resurrection from the dead to enjoy the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. Jesus expected them to make that conclusion on their own. And so if he expects them to make that conclusion from the scriptures by putting these ideas together and having that necessary conclusion, then he expects us to as well. 
if Jesus drew necessary conclusions based on two passages that he put together, conclusions about things that aren't explicitly stated, then we can too. It was an acceptable way of establishing authority for him, and so it should be for us. So finally, let me say in closing here, we're just about out of time. We know that Jesus possesses all authority. Matthew 28, 18, we read that earlier. And so we, we ask the question, who is it that has to sign off on everything that we do? Whether we're talking about how we worship, our marriages, um, whether in our roles as fathers and mothers and husbands and wives, when we talk about the work of a local church, just to name a few, his plan of salvation, well, he does. He has to sign off on all of that. He's our perfect example in every way. He is the authority. And he shows us how to submit to, and he shows us how to establish authority. And so to question, I think, and challenge this framework, these rules that Jesus used to establish authority and to teach God's will, I think it's to, I believe it is to question and challenge Christ himself. Because if the means that he used, if the rules that he used were good enough for him to understand Scripture and then to teach it to others in that way, then it should be good enough for us. Our goal is to learn to be pleasing to him in every respect, Paul says in Colossians 1.10. So let's not allow ourselves to forget these principles, but reinforce them and accept them as Jesus did. And teach them to our children. Let's not allow a generation to arise after us who doesn't know these principles because we failed to teach them the most fundamental of principles. I appreciate you tuning in today. I'm Jason Garcia, and this has been Faithful Sayings.